Well, good morning. Way to go to make, you know, making it through the snow, the, the terrible, awful, severe blizzard. I, I know this morning there are people staying home because there's a little bit of snow, but not you, not you. My name is Jim. We're in a series we've titled Turning the World Upside Down, which is a phrase taken from Acts chapter 17. We're working through that New Testament book known as the Acts of the Apostles. If you have a Bible this morning, I hope that you'll have that at hand. If you would like to catch up on any of these messages, all of our messages are available on YouTube. Just Type in LifePoint Church of Olympia, and you'll find us. And then the sermons are also available at mylpcoli.com forward slash media. And uh, this morning, if you'd like to take notes on your personal device, you can do that at mylpcoli.com forward slash notes, and then email that directly uh, to your inbox. Well, our title this morning is Raised by an Embrace. We're in Acts chapter 20. Verses 1 through 16, would you stand again with me and let's read God's word together. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. You may be seated. Way to go on those big words, you guys. You, you did awesome. And, and none of them are here to correct you, right? So you, you can pronounce it any way you want. 
Well, let's take a look at this passage. In, in verses 1 to 3, uh, Luke provides us with another one of his travelogue passages that, that, that just kind of help us to follow the progress of his journeys on this, which was his third missionary journey. And let me just read verses 1 to 3 again for us. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Well, verse 1 obviously begins with that phrase, after the uproar ceased, which was a reference to the, the near riot in Ephesus that we looked at last week, incited by a guy named Demetrius, who was a silversmith. When the, the converting, transforming power of the gospel in the lives of those who believed began to cut deeply into the profit margins of those who made their living, by production of trinkets and souvenirs related to the pagan temple and the worship of the goddess Artemis. Paul called the disciples in Ephesus together. He encouraged them. He he bid them farewell, departed for Macedonia. There in Macedonia and Achaia, uh, Paul traveled southward into Greece, and along the way, it seems, was just encouraging the believers. That word encourage shows up twice in this first section. He stayed three months there in southern Greece. From there, he intended to set sail for Syria. He caught wind of a plot uh, against his life. So instead of traveling by sea, he chose to return overland, northward through Macedonia, finally setting sail from Philippi and arriving in the Asian city of Troas. And by Asian, remember, we're talking about what is modern-day Turkey. <clears throat> Why would Paul subject himself to a tiresome overland journey when he could have boarded a ship and just enjoyed a lovely Aegean cruise, as it were. Well, here's one possible explanation. We're reminded here, I think, of Paul's status as a citizen of Rome. And with that status, as long as he remained on Roman-occupied soil, he was well protected by the power of the empire, but not so on the sea. Now, the sea was considered politically and legally neutral so that whatever may have happened uh, on the sea was not subject to Roman jurisdiction. And uh, so if those Jewish conspirators could get close to Paul aboard a ship where he was vulnerable and and there take his life and were subsequently apprehended, they, they could claim immunity to Roman jurisdiction. They, they, they essentially could take Paul's life with impunity. And this is at least one plausible explanation for Paul's decision to travel on land back through Macedonia, having caught wind of that conspiracy to take his life. Interestingly, in, in verses 13 to 14, we see him do the same thing again en route from Troas to Assos, perhaps for similar reasons. It just may be that his choices to take the long route, as it were, also provided Paul the occasion uh, to find the solitude that he needed in order to pray, to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, and to allow the Lord to refresh and restore his soul. So that's speculative, but um, it bears some consistency with with uh, what we know of Paul's realities. And yet along the way, he was also accompanied by friends 
notice the list in verses 4 to 6, and I'm not going to make you read this aloud again. I'll do it for you. I'll make the mistakes for you. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians are Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. So a subnote to this paragraph is that it marks the resumption of Luke's uh, we passages. You notice that when when Luke, the writer of this history of the early church, is is personally present, uh, the the pronouns subtly change from they and them to um, we and us. And it seems that Paul must have reconnected with Luke uh, in Philippi and brought him along on this journey. Nearly everywhere Paul traveled, he had a team around him. He seems to have understood well the meaning of that old saying, we are better together. Uh, This list includes men from several of the cities in which Paul and Silas and Timothy had planted churches earlier. And here we see another dynamic in Paul's missionary philosophy. Um, He would invite certain men to join him on his travels. Some of them possessed skills and abilities that would be needed for particular journeys. Uh, Along the way, he'd further instruct and what we would say today, disciple each of them, and and then he would deploy them in certain cities uh, to either continue the mission there or, as it were, to preserve the the spiritual fruit that had been produced uh, to shepherd the flocks there. The diversity of this group, it is represented by two names in particular. I mean, it's a, it's a very diverse group of men. But I'd like you to just notice two names in particular that appear on this list. Aristarchus and Secundus. Let's consider Aristarchus first. His name means best leader or best ruler. Uh, it, in fact, that name comes from the same root word as our modern word aristocrat. And and this name tells us that this man was raised in a family that was part of the upper ruling class. Then there's the name Secundus. This man's name tells us that his upbringing took place on the diametric opposite end of society. He was a slave. How do we know that? Well, in the dehumanizing world of slavery, given names were often taken away. Secundus isn't actually a name at all. It's a rank. And it literally means, you probably already guessed it, second. He was second. In the hierarchy of the slaves and whatever business or household he had served, this man had been ranked second. He was number two. What would the slave just above him in the rankings have been called? Any ideas? Primus. Primus first. So Primus, in the vernacular of Dr. Seuss, was literally thing one. And Secundus was thing two. They were numbers. 
not names. Things, not human beings. Slaves. So that these two men, Aristarchus and Secundus, obviously from radically different backgrounds, were included on Paul's missionary team, is another reminder, I think, of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, for the salvation of all who believe, regardless of, of race, regardless of ethnicity, socioeconomic status, and, and, and the leveling, equalizing, unifying dynamic of the Holy Spirit uh, within the church of Jesus Christ. You may have heard this proverb is purportedly of African origin. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. We saw last week that Paul's vision was eventually to go to Rome or even beyond Rome to Spain, which was, as you know, at the far western edge of the Mediterranean. Paul understood that to go far required going together. It's it's as true in the mission of the church as it is in the regular day-to-day life of the church. We need each other desperately, and we're meant to live in vital Christian community. We're, we're designed to serve one another in community. We're called to honor one another. We're called to engage the mission of the gospel from community. And if we want to advance the gospel here in Olympia and around the world, it's essential that we go together. And with that in mind, I, I just want to encourage you, um, if you've made the decision that Life Point is your church, but you haven't made yet made the declaration. Um, I want to encourage you to begin the process toward becoming a Life Point church partner. You you've seen some names on the screen of recent of uh, people who have uh, become partners. Uh, many have taken that step. We we'd love to formally welcome you into the partnership of our church. So you can just go to mylpcoli.com forward slash partner, and and you'll discover how to get that process started. Well, Paul and his band of brothers arrived in um, the Asian city of Troas, and it comes as no surprise that when the next Lord's Day came around, they gathered together with the church in that city. And notice the insights provided in the first half of verse 7 regarding the life of the early church. It says, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. I'm going to stop right there half a sentence. Because what we're reading here in verse 7 is is the earliest unambiguous evidence we have for Christ followers gathering for worship on the first day of the week rather than Saturday, the seventh day of the week, the Jewish Sabbath. So why did Christians begin worshiping on the first day of the week? Why is it sometimes referred to in the New Testament as the Lord's Day? Um... Since the first century A.D., the the majority of Christians around the world have met on the first day of the week because it was on a Sunday that the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead. It's not that the earliest Jewish believers in Jesus as Messiah were rejecting the synagogue gatherings on Saturday. In fact, most of them continued on in the synagogue with their Jewish friends and family on Saturdays. But they also began gathering with believers on Sunday. And so there was just this, just this kind of progression, and maybe we call it a migration to Sunday 
as the day when Christians gathered to worship. Of course, there's a a minority among Christians who persist in worshiping on the seventh day and insist that everyone else follow their lead. Um, Some of them can be very aggressive, uh, even militant, in their attempts to persuade the rest of us that we're doing it wrong. Uh, How should we respond to them? We should respond to them in love. That's how we should respond to them. So let's understand and acknowledge that while there's a there's good reason for the long-standing tradition of Christians gathering to worship on Sundays, there is in fact no biblical prescription. There is no biblical requirement to do so. So if some want to worship on Saturdays and feel they're doing the right thing, let them do that. Um, bless them for their conviction. In fact. Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, Romans 14, verses 5 and 6, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. So whatever you choose to do, whenever you choose to worship, do that in honor of the Lord and respect those who make other choices. Notice next the purpose of their gathering. It says they gather to break bread. That, that phrase, break bread, or breaking bread, nearly always refers in the New Testament to the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, and, and it was nearly always celebrated, nearly always celebrated in the context of a fellowship meal. Um, so the event about which we're reading this morning would have included at least three elements, a fellowship meal, probably a, a big potluck, um, celebration of communion, and then a time of instruction from God's Word. And we're going to be breaking bread together at the close of this service today, as Evan mentioned earlier, as, as we celebrate the accomplishment of Christ for us through the Christ, through the cross, as we celebrate our oneness in Christ, and, and as we celebrate the hope that's, that's ours, that we have, that, that He's coming again to take us home. And, and by the way, what's, what's commencing this Wednesday evening with our family nights, um, is a fellowship meal for the whole church, and uh, as well as a time of biblical instruction. I hope you're planning to participate. It's going to be uh, just a great time for the whole family. Looking forward to that very much. Well, during that gathering of believers in Troas, we read of a young man among them who was killed by preaching. Any of you resonate this morning with that with that thought? Killed by preaching. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. See, you've got it easy. There there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now, can we talk for just a moment about sleeping in church? I just want to affirm that some of you are champions at that. And... uh you know who you are. So do I. And, and, and some of you are really subtle. And this is how I see it from up here. You, you, uh, you open your Bible at the appropriate time and you set it neatly in your lap. And then you gaze downwardly, attentively at that. And, uh, as if you're reading, as if you're reading and meditating. But, but eventually your eyes close and you're suddenly attending another church. You're, you're in the sanctuary of the blessed rest. And, and it's not really a problem until one of three things happens. One is that your lower lip separates from your upper lip and 
and just begins to hang downward towards your Bible so that you begin to drool on your Bible. I've seen it happen. This is usually accompanied by some pretty dramatic head nods, as if you're agreeing with what I have to say. Uh, or two, you begin to snore, uh, the dead giveaway to everyone around you. Or, or three, you just you suddenly awaken accompanied by this major flinch, right? And, and often some flailing, and, 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 and I see you. I see you. There's one man that will live in my memory as the ultimate master. His name was Bob. He was a former Marine. His wife was on the staff of the church that Marcy and I attended when I was in grad school. And he would always sit in the second row from the front of the church, right, right down here, so that his back was to most of the congregation, right? Nobody could see what was going on with Bob. But, but he could sit ramrod straight, I mean ramrod straight, cross his arms across his chest, go to sleep, and maintain that posture like a pro right through the sermon while enjoying a very nice nap. And and in the hall of fame of church sleepers, Bob was legendary. Some of you know the name John Wesley, who was the uh, the English theologian and evangelist who became the father of what we know as the Methodist movement, the Methodist church. I heard a story about a man who was sleeping during a sermon in Wesley's church, and Wesley could clearly see from his pulpit that the man was dozing. And so suddenly, in the middle of his sermon, in mid-sentence, in fact, Wesley just unexpectedly began screaming, Fire! 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 And of course, the sleeping man abruptly awakens and says, Fire! Where? Where's the fire? And Wesley responded, the fire's in hell for those who sleep in church. (laughs) It's a great story. I can assure you that sleeping in church will not be the cause of anyone's eternal damnation. Uh, And I want you to know that if you need to take a nap in church, be my guest. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Just don't snore. Luke tells us that Paul kept on talking with the believers there in that upper room in Troas until around midnight. Um, It's important for us to understand the circumstances, and Luke points it out. For Paul, there was the recognition that that his time there was very short. Um, He expected never to to be back in Troas again. He he intended to depart depart the next day, and and so he wanted to take full advantage of the opportunity uh, to instruct them in the Lord from the Word of God. Uh, on the part of the believers, there's there's no hint here that they were anything but eager and receptive. It wasn't viewed like we Americans do as, as beyond the pale <laughs> to preach till midnight. It was obviously an evening service. It began in the evening. Luke's observation that Paul kept on teaching them past midnight is, is merely factual. It's not at all critical. I, I use that expression, killed by preaching, with my tongue in my cheek, of course, because the words that Luke used to describe Paul's teaching indicate that it, it wasn't like what I'm doing right now. It wasn't a monologue, a sermon, you know, standing six feet above contradiction and holding forth. That's not what was going on. Instead, there was a dialogue. That's the word that, that Luke uses here. Uh, it was a give and take. There was an exchange of questions and answers, an interchange of thoughts and ideas. Nevertheless, as Howard Hendricks used to say, the, the mind can only absorb what the body can endure. And I've heard that um, morphed a little bit to the mind can only observe, 
uh, absorb what the butt can endure. Uh, I've also heard that mind can only absorb what the bladder can endure. This this reality was being played out that that night in the life of a young man named Eutychus. And, and interestingly, and perhaps appropriately, his name literally means well-fated or fortunate. <laughs> fortunate young man. Fortunate he was, especially on this occasion. So let's consider the circumstances that Eutychus was dealing with that night. Luke tells us, first of all, that Eutychus was a young man in his prime. Uh, He'd probably already put in a full day's work. He had participated in the meal that evening, so he had a full stomach. The hour was late. The upper room was crowded and warm. And remember, this isn't a church building. This is an upper room in a home. This is a third-story room in a home. Um, Crowded and warm. The oil lamps would have added to the warmth. You know, I recall visiting uh, the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem when, when Marcy and I had the privilege of going to Israel several years ago. And that building is lit by hundreds, if not thousands, of oil lamps uh, suspended from the high ceilings. And I can tell you that the heaviness of the air in that room from the fumes that came from those oil lamps... Um, made me want to get out of there as soon as I could. And I thought, this is really odd. Here I am at the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, and I just want to escape. But it tells you something about oil lamps, and uh, it's it, they're not all that. <laughs> Be thankful for light bulbs. Um, maybe all of that explains why Eutychus chose to sit near the window or in the window. Remember, windows in those days didn't have glass in them. Maybe he was simply attempting to stay awake. Nevertheless, he fell into a deep sleep. I I can empathize with Eutychus. All of us can relate at some level and in some circumstances. Except that, having fallen asleep, Eutychus plummeted to his untimely demise. Verse 8 says that he was taken up dead. And the word that Luke uses here, Dr. Luke, is, is necros, meaning that Eutychus had not simply lost consciousness or slipped into a coma. He he died. He was killed by the fall. Um, I can only think Paul must have preached a killer sermon that night. So, so we might say tongue-in-cheek that Eutychus was killed by preaching, but he was also raised then by an embrace. And this is what I want us to spend the rest of our time thinking about that that Eutychus, this young man, was raised by an embrace. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Now check out what happens next. Paul Paul went down to the street where Eutychus' dead body now laid, I, I imagine that the entire house emptied to hurry to his side. Perhaps some of the neighbors uh, in surrounding homes came out as well. And having done that, it says that Paul bent over him. That's the way the English Standard Version translates this phrase. But a literal translation says that Paul laid on him. Laid on him. Seems a little strange, doesn't it? 
So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you may be hearing a faint echo right about now of something that, that you once read in 1 Kings 17 and the account of uh, the prophet Elijah's ministry in the life of a Gentile widow and her son in the city of Zarephath. And in verse 17 of 1 Kings 17, this woman's son takes ill and dies. And she calls in her desperation for Elijah, one of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, who comes and prays. And then in verses 21 to 22, it says, he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. You may recall that Elijah was succeeded by his protege, Elisha. And in 2 Kings 4, 32-37, there's a, a very, very similar story when where Elisha is called by a wealthy woman who, along with her husband, had been providing lodging to Elisha and his uh, servant Gehazi. The son of this is a wealthy couple, and their son is is overwhelmed one day by sudden intense pain in his head. The Bible doesn't explain the 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 nature of that, but he he has this sudden severe headache, and and it kills him. He dies. So when Elisha arrives at the house and sees the child lying dead on the bed, just as Elijah um, had, as, as just as he had seen Elijah do, he he lays down on the boy, and it says, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands, and as he does that, the scripture says that the boy's body, which had gone cold, became warm again. Elisha gets up, he he walks around the room. I don't know know what the symbolism of that is or if there's any symbolism or if he's just taking a break, but he walked around the room. And then again he comes and he stretches himself out on this boy's body. And and it says that the boy suddenly sneezes seven times. Uh, Hoping Elisha's face wasn't right there when he sneezed. But, But he sneezes seven times and And Elisha presents him back to his mother very much alive. So this is exactly what Paul does here in Acts chapter 20 with the dead body of Eutychus. He lays down on him, and Eutychus was raised from the dead. And then taking Eutychus in his arms and embracing him, he says to the stunned and grieving people who had gathered around, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. Don't don't be confused here. The restoration of Eutychus is described in terms of an actual raising from the dead. In fact, uh, Eutychus was the eighth and final person in the Bible to have literally been raised from the dead. We might ask why it was that according to his sovereign plan and purpose, God worked this miracle through Paul on this occasion. And I will tell you, I don't know. <laughs> but what we're reading here is nothing less than a demonstration of the power of God being exercised through Paul to such a degree that he is shown to be equal with those two great prophets of the Old Testament. And here's an incredibly powerful validation of Paul's spiritual authority, an undeniable confirmation that people should listen to him, to his instruction. 
Notice then the, the two things that happened next. And I, I just love this story. First, Paul went back into the house, had something to eat. And, and you almost get the sense of, come on, Paul, this guy was just raised from the dead. Do, do something different. He goes, no, I'd really like to have a sandwich. <laughs> so he goes back in the house, has something to eat. Everybody goes back in the house. And he keeps teaching them until daybreak, and then he departs. And you know, we can be amazed at the miracle, we can be preoccupied by it even, but don't miss the implication here that Paul saw the preaching and teaching of God's Word, not the performing of miracles, as the centerpiece of his ministry. One teacher expressed it this way, he said that this was not a miracle service interrupted by a word of preaching. This was preaching and teaching interrupted by a miracle. Second, Luke says that they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. I suppose you could take that two different ways. Um, but as we've seen, this is Luke's way of saying that they were greatly comforted. Though Those uh, who believed that they had lost Eutychus that night, his family and his closest friends took him home. A good thing. What a significant night it had been for that church, right, in Troas. For, for Paul's team, for Eutychus himself and his family. Paul, Paul had taught them. They had fellowship in the Lord's Supper. They had witnessed a dramatic sign of God's presence among them, his power. And then, and then Paul taught them again. Paul taught them all night. Unbelievable. And, and the people didn't go home complaining about the extraordinary length of Paul's teaching. They, they went home tired, but also comforted. And rejoicing. Well, I want to talk about embracing the next generation through the lens of this experience of Paul and Eutychus. And I'd like to focus my comments here specifically on youth, that is middle school, high school, college age students. You know, many young people in evangelical churches today are present they're fully engaged. They have a personal faith in Jesus that's real, that, that they own. They're not resistant to the teaching of God's Word. On, on the contrary, they take their faith seriously. They're hungry for biblical teaching that, that speaks with clarity and authority to the issues and struggles that they face as young people. But I think we have to acknowledge that, that many more, uh, though uh, physically present, are essentially disconnected, whether spiritually or intellectually or relationally. And perhaps the imagery of Eutychus sitting on the fringes of the room, visibly looking inward but functionally leaning outward, uh, provides a helpful paradigm for understanding the dynamic of students being here but not really here. Uh, these may be sitting in church, but in reality they are moments away from a fatal fall. I read a book when I was a graduate student, uh, the title of which still haunts me. It was, Will Our Children Have Faith? Will Our Children Have Faith? It's a question I think that should haunt both Christian parents and church leaders today. The, the statistics vary depending on which studies one may consult, but to what nearly all of the major studies of the spiritual lives of American evangelical teens conducted in recent years agree on is that roughly uh, 65 to 70 percent 
65 to 70 percent of high school students who enter college as professing Christians will leave college with little to no faith whatsoever. And these students usually don't return to the church or to Christian faith even after graduation. It's even, uh, if that's even a little bit concerning to you as a parent or a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a friend, I, I hope you'll consider the thoughts that I have to share before we wrap this up. What's necessary for us as individuals and as a church to be about in order to prevent more young people from falling out the window of the church, falling out of Christian faith. And I'd just like to use as an outline for these thoughts the actions of Paul in response to Eutychus. First, Paul, remember, went down three stories. From three stories above to where Eutychus was. And here's how I'd like to apply this. One of the leading indicators um, for young people who develop a sticky faith, that is a faith that endures through adolescence and into mature adulthood, is that they experienced intergenerational connectedness within the church. In fact, uh, all of the major studies are now pointing to this one factor, that students were intergenerationally connected within the local church where they were raised. That is, that they had meaningful relationships with Christian uh, men and women who were older, even considerably older than they. They knew these people personally and were personally known by them. They had meaningful relationships with children who were younger than they. Foundational to that is that they had at least one parent who had a genuine faith in Christ. And the most reliable element in a child developing a faith that lasts is that they saw an attractive model of personal faith in that parent and were taught and encouraged in the faith by that parent. And in the absence of of that parental influence, the next best thing was that another caring adult became a personal mentor or a kind of surrogate parent in their life and showed them what it means to follow Jesus. One of the things this suggests is that the stereotypical model of a volunteer youth worker in the church needing to be 35 or younger is really false. And I, I lived this as a, a young person. The couple in the church that uh, I grew up in that who volunteered to lead middle school ministry uh, we're old enough to have been our grandparents. But the important thing looking back is that they simply loved us. And because of that, we loved them in return. Their their home was always open to us. They, they took great interest in our lives. And you may have thought at one time or another that you're too old to work effectively with young people. And uh, I want you to banish that thought. If if you're willing to love kids, genuinely love them without an agenda and enter their lives as an encouraging influence, God can use you as a teacher, a a mentor, or a friend, and and he will if you'll let him. Uh, I hope that you'll consider joining our youth ministry team. This is a critical moment for us, and uh, I, I just want to strongly encourage you in that direction. Allow me to suggest a few other ideas for coming down those three stories 
to where young people are. I want to encourage you to invest in the kids in our church in this simple way. If you can't do anything else, do this. Simply learn their names. Uh, Greet them by name each Sunday. Allow them to do the same with you. Uh, Become a prayer partner with a young person in our church. Our our youth leaders can can help you identify a young person to pray for each day. Some of you pray for kids and, you know, you've got little pictures on your refrigerator at home or somebody you're supporting through World Vision or World Concern or Compassion International in some far country. Why not do that here? Choose a young person and just pray for that person. Pray that God draws that student close to himself, that, that they come to know Jesus personally, that they grow in that relationship for a lifetime. Here's another thought. Why not uh, talk to Cindy Appleby and say, we'll open our home to youth events. Maybe you've got a great backyard or maybe you've got a big living room and um, <clears throat> make a point of getting to know the kids then who come to your place. Make a point of meeting and eating with with one or more teens at our family nights that begin this Wednesday. Um, let them get to know you. They may be shy at first, but be gentle and stick with it. Just draw close to a kid. Here's another key element of intergenerational connectedness in the church. Involvement. Here's a, This is problematic for us, honestly. Involvement in all church worship during high school is now more consistently linked with mature faith in both high school and college than any other form of church participation. And here's what, here's what people who are serious about youth ministry are telling us these days. If teens become used to worshiping only with people their own age, they find it hard upon graduating from high school to transition into intergenerational worship services, what many churches refer to as big church, what we're, what we're doing right here. It seems like a foreign country to them. And, and it leaves young people feeling homeless when they graduate. Where do I go? Where do I belong? And parents of teens, you, you might want to consider choosing to attend the second service on Sundays. Um, and having your kids attend worship with you after the youth class in the first hour. It could have a huge long-term impact in their lives. Secondly, Paul laid down on Eutychus, and I'm not encouraging that kind of activity for you. Um, it could get you into lots of trouble if you try that. But remember what happened when Paul did it. The power of God working through Paul raised Eutychus to life. Here's what Paul wrote to the church in Rome. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. What's my point? Nothing is more important to the development of a faith that lasts a lifetime than a young person's view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the fatal errors that churches make in ministry with teens is to go heavy on pizza and entertainment and light on Jesus and the Bible. Um, 
So many of those who leave the church after high school or college are reporting that they were simply bored. They got tired of pizza. They got tired of game nights. They were under-challenged in the church. Young people are hungry to know what the Bible has to say about who they are, about their personal lives, their worldview, their relationships, their, their purpose in life, their eternal future. Will we tell them? Will we give them the answers to those questions? They may not even know how to articulate those questions, but will we answer them or will we simply entertain them? What they themselves are telling us is that they want more of Jesus, not less. They want more of the gospel, not less. They want more of the Bible and not less. Third, Paul embraced Eutychus. He embraced him. He took Eutychus in his arms. And I think this points to the need and the longing of young people to be embraced in a grace-filled community. If you're paying even a little bit of attention to what's going on in our nation and in our world, you're aware that young people today are reporting unprecedented unprecedented rates of loneliness, anxiety, depression, drug abuse, sexual confusion, gender dysphoria, suicide. And kids in the church are not at all immune to any of that. They are living in the same world. They're being impacted by all of the same influences. What can make a difference? Caring, thoughtful, Christian adults embracing the children and teens in our church, making sure that each one of them has come to a saving knowledge of Christ, incorporating them into the grace-filled community of LifePoint Church. Well, there's so much more I can say, but I'll leave it there. You're you're reasonable people. I, I hope you'll reflect on these things. I hope you'll consider your own response. Let me close with just this. A, A report on a national research study conducted by the Evangelical Free Church of America that was titled The Church and the Future of Youth Ministry included this comment in its conclusions. The future of successful youth ministry hinges on our willingness to make resilient disciples who make resilient disciples. Churches that replace nervous hand-wringing with energetic mission to the next generation will get a courtside seat to the transformation of young people. As we come to the table of the Lord this morning, we're reminded of the grace of God extended to us in Christ of the sacrifice that Christ offered on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin, for the resurrection power of God to transform the life of anyone who believes in Jesus. We're, We're also powerfully reminded of the oneness that we know and experience in the body of Christ. We symbolically eat of one loaf, we drink of one cup, the body and the blood of Jesus. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, we we invite you to participate. You'll take that thing that was handed to you on the way in. In his gospel, Luke recorded that at that last meal that Jesus enjoyed with his disciples before he, before his suffering and, and his crucifixion, the, the Passover meal, that in good Middle Eastern form, Jesus reclined at the table 
and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Lord, as we think today about the power of the gospel in the life of anyone who believes, whether young or old, we pray especially today for the young people in our church, those that you have brought within the sphere of our influence. Lord, may we be found faithful in loving them, praying for them, engaging with them, teaching them your word, helping them to know that there is a Savior who loves them and a community of people who love them in his name. Lord, I pray for every one of the kids in our youth ministry that each one of them would come to know Christ in a very personal way and in a way that sticks for a lifetime. We're not capable of it except by your Spirit. And so, Lord, would you move in us and among us and through us that these things may be so. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.